why did we not apply the bottle return system into e-commerce? Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to Mission First, the podcast to get inspired and to learn from successful entrepreneurs who are building a sustainable future for our planet and its people. I am Gilles Toussaint, your host and the founder of GT Impact, a growth and digital marketing agency working only with companies making a positive difference in this world. Lots of entrepreneurs dream of disrupting a market with a real innovation, but few are those who manage to achieve that. The circular economy seems like the perfect solution for our future, but it's not easy to develop the right product with the right business model at the right time. You have to find the right early adopters and sometimes factors like market, society trends, or even political decisions play a major role on the timing. Today, I have the chance to talk to Jenne Hergren, the founder and CEO of Repack. He launched his company Repack in 2011, and from what he told me, he launched it way too early. He went through some difficult phases, like changing co-founders and the early team, but he hung on, and now his company is trusted by more than 150 brands like Zalando, Levi's, the Avocado Store, and he's revolutionizing the packaging industry for e-commerce. Repack makes packaging which is reusable and returnable. E-commerce companies use the Repack packaging to send their products to consumers, which can return the Repack packaging for free from anywhere in the world just by posting it in a post box. Then Repack check it, clean it, and then it's ready to be used again. And the best thing, consumers are rewarded for sending the package back, so it's a way for companies to increase their user engagement. Thanks to their solution, companies sending products can save up to 80% of CO2 emission compared to classic packaging. They won more than 14 design and sustainability awards since their launch. So today we are going to talk about how to disrupt the market and end packaging trash. Jonne will share some advice about product design, circular economy, and how to find the right customers. He will also share some tips about shareholder agreement and how to best set the terms between co-founders when you start a company and what kind of mistakes you should avoid in that case. Can you relate to these topics? Then without further ado, let's start this episode together. One small comment before we dig into this episode. This podcast is like a masterclass with long episodes where we talk in detail about the challenges and learnings of every guest. But if your time is limited and you still want to get advice about growing your business and having a greater positive impact on this planet, I've just created a best of series with a special format. 10 audio episodes between 3 to 10 minutes, shorter than a coffee break. They are only hands-on advice shared by the guests of this podcast. You can receive these best of episodes by signing up for my newsletter, in which I also send a text summary of the do's and don'ts shared by each guest after every episode. So if you want to get these condensed and useful tips for and from successful entrepreneurs with a sustainable mission, just go to my website gtimpact.com or find the link in the description of this episode and sign up for the newsletter. Jonne, thank you very much for being here today. So you are the founder of Repack. Have I explained it correctly or do you have to correct me a bit to, to explain what Repack is doing? Oh, your explanation was very good. I mean, Repack is a simple solution to reduce trash where reusable packaging is simply returned by post to be reused. 
and this can be done anywhere in the world just by simply folding a, a, an empty packaging into into letter size and dropping it into a post box. Once returned, uh, users are, are rewarded for doing so often often with a voucher for their next purchase and the packaging is reused. Our focus is on fashion and soft goods. So, and, and market-wise, we are operational in Europe and North America at the moment. Can you tell us a bit what's, so that, that's what, what you are doing and what's your specific mission with, with WePack? What's your purpose? Well, we actually, when we founded a company, it, it had nothing to do with reusable packaging. We founded a sustainable design agency. I myself have a sustainability consultancy background and we founded a design agency with two industrial designers with the goal of, of combining uh, environmental analysis into a product design process. And during the first years of working together, uh, we were working with Finnish post office and came up with the, well, we spent a lot of time in the warehouses and saw the rise of e-commerce. So we came up with the idea, uh, one of the uh, inventor, inventor of our team really came up with the idea of why could we not apply the bottle return system into e-commerce? So uh, we've grown up with the bottle return system in Finland. It's part of our culture, really. Uh, so... That was the initial idea, and, and for a two for two three years, Repack was just a side project within the company. So while we were working with different design projects for different companies, Repack was a side project. But um, it uh, so it started developing um, and became more and more appealing. Uh, as an, and not just as an idea, but actually something that uh, we slowly started putting more and more focus on. So uh, just to, to also give an idea of how big the company is right now, um, you, you told me you have about 15 employees. Yeah, we currently have a, a team of, of, yeah, about 15 people, um, both in Europe and North America. Um, we started uh, with a team of three, but only in the past uh, year, year and a half, we've grown quite significantly with the help of uh, yeah, Horizon 2020 funding from the European Union. Got two million euros from uh, from the EU to to develop and scale the service, and and that of course helped us to to hire uh, new new team members. Uh, to commercialize um, and develop the solution further. Uh, so currently we're working with, with over, over 150 brands and retailers in, in Europe and North America. Um, and, and last year's revenues were on the region of around 600,000 euros. So while it's still very much in a, in a, in a early growth phase, I'd say. Okay, and and before, so you got this grant recently, and between 2011 and, and, and this grant, how have you funded the project? Uh, through 
different trends, couple of uh, angel investors, and uh, and through different project development projects that that we had. So because we started as a as a design agency, so we had that um, both helping us uh, financially, but also it proved to be a bit of a distraction. So we couldn't focus. We were not able to focus on 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 Repack as much as we wanted to because of the kind of the financial constraints, but also mentally, when you're trying to develop kind of a, a solution that doesn't exist, I think it, it requires a lot of uh, groundwork and testing and workshopping and, and testing your ideas, getting feedback, understanding what works, what doesn't. But if there is, a, like we did, we had a, well, I, I mean, it was both helping us because we had uh, projects from different customers that created revenues for us. They had nothing to do with reusable packaging. So we only did those for financial reasons. And for, for any startup, it's a difficult position to be in where your only focus should be to find and create a new uh, disruptive solution. But if, if you are not able to focus on that 100%, if you have uh, if you don't have the financial means to provide for the team members, then the development will suffer and slow down for sure. And so that's a very interesting part because I think lots of entrepreneurs or people who want to start a project or are starting something as a side project, whatever on the, like, like you on your agency as freelancers, uh, you said it, you know, it was more like a distraction. It was not easy to focus, even if you wanted to focus more on it. Do you remember one like you know key decision or one key adjustment or what really happens so that at some point you you, you manage to say okay now we're gonna focus only on repack was there a major event or decision? Yeah, that was um, in 2016. We got uh, an angel investor and uh, uh, two hundred and fifty thousand grant. So we had about. 400,000 euro budget for the next year, which at that time for us, we thought it was a lot. And after 12 months, we hadn't really made much progress. We had a, a founding team of, of three persons. And my conclusion was that uh, either the, the founding team needs to re, uh, readjust the mindset of what we are going to do or we need new team members. At the start of you're always learning. You're always doing things that you don't know what you're really doing. You just have to do them. You have to learn new things, new skills. Especially in the early days, you are very much at the deep end without knowing how to swim. That's something you will only discover when you get there. If 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 you are that kind of a person who learns to swim or, or, or goes back to the shore. Yeah. <laughs> or <laughs> die in the water. So I guess 
that you're referring to in that part, one of the, the advice you sent me was for the entrepreneurs out there was make sure you have a shareholder agreement in place. So is that what you're referring to at that time? Did you have to, did you actually change the team? And, and basically what was the, the biggest challenge at that time and how did you overcome it? Yeah, because we, we, were, we didn't set out to find a, found a startup. We founded a design agency. So we didn't have any uh, shareholders agreement. We had talked about it, but because we didn't really have a, a framework or, or understanding how to set that up. So we just pushed it back and thought that uh, we will, if, if, If a situation arises where somebody is leaving the team or we need to make changes, then we'll come to an agreement. But uh, of course, when you are at that situation when those changes are going to need to be done, then the, the dynamic, dynamics have changed quite a bit. So what was the And, outcome uh, at that time? Like, uh, like you were three, who remained? No, from the founding team of three, I was the, the only one who remained at three back uh, uh, full time. Uh, I mean, we still work with, with two other founders, but they are more on a consultative role uh, because they have the, the know-how of, of the physical demands of, of reusable packaging. So it'd be stupid not to use them and they still remain as, as, as small, uh, have a small shareholding in, in the company but not in the capacity uh, that they had in, in the early days. So have you created, do, do you still have like then, like are there two companies now? There is Repack and there is a, the, the, the previous design agency? Yeah, the design agency is, is, is a separate company. Um, we don't have a formal relationship. The Repack doesn't own anything of, of the design agency as such. Uh, The, but the two two other co-founders who are no longer part of the 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 day-to-day -day operations are still minority shareholders at at Repack. So that is the solution that we came up with, where they got to focus on on product design as industrial designers, and and um, I, together with the board of directors at at Repack, set out to build a more commercially minded uh, mm -hmm. team. To scale the service. If you had to to start this over again, like for like because it's just, this is really interesting, you know. Like I'm growing an agency as well, and uh, we are at the, the the time right now, for example, where we uh, like start to to have partners, and it's it's hard to say at the beginning, okay, are these going to be co-founders or you know employees or freelancers or uh, and I know, for example, like me, my goal is to to help companies like scale and grow with with digital marketing and video marketing but i know as well that you you probably know it that services are not scalable not easily so mm. at some point i really like the future i think is always to as a build a product the way you did or to like build a, a more scalable service like trainings or uh, something online trainings mm. or something like that um what would be if you would start over again now What would be the advice you would give in terms of like shareholder agreement uh, to, to the, the person starting this kind of, of things in parallel uh, and with different co-founders and that is not sure yet where you are going? 
nobody is sure where you're going to go. Things will change. Plans will change. Your personal situations will change. You may get a, a cool job offer at a different company. Your partner may want to move to a different uh, continent. Uh, life, life comes and happens. So for those situations, I strongly advise every, every company founder to figure out that what if I decide to leave this company or what if my partner decides to leave this company? How do we resolve that situation? What happens to the stock that they have? Um, that is the, the key question because if you have, for example, a, a shareholder that has 30% of the company at an early stage where it hasn't generated any revenues, uh, for example, and then they decide to leave, then it's it's unfair to others uh, that this person who is leaving the company would still own 30% of the company while uh, the others would stay and, and build the company and, and this one person who has left would still benefit from all the future proceedings. Of course, they may have had a significant impact at an early stage, so it may not be possible that they give out all their stock, for example. But these situations kind of need to be discussed when things are fine. Yeah, yeah. So that everyone feels that, okay, this is a fair way to resolve a situation if and when it arises. You said something very interesting is you said, like, it's, you need to wait, it's unfair to leave, or you have an unfair advantage if you leave before the company is even like making revenue or is profitable, let's say. Uh, is the solution for you then if you were to start again? to go for like vested equities, not even in terms of years, but in terms of objectives of like, uh, you'll you get a part of the shares. So for vested equities for those who listen to are, you know, like a part you can, you can invest and so gain some equities, earn some equities, depending on the time you work on. And you can have as a progressive, uh, like a, a progressive uh, model where you, you earn it every month or every year, or you can have a cliff where it's after three years or five years, for example, what is, if you were to start the company now, what, what do you think would be the best model for you? Well, I think that also depends on the role of the person. So if they are a commercial person, then, then probably some kind of a revenue target would be sensible. But that revenue target wouldn't make sense for a, a, if you had a software developer or a, or, or a designer. So then, then that becomes harder to figure out, okay, so what is... Is it based on time or is it based on, on a, a target or some other target? I think this is, this is the kind of discussion that is very difficult to give um, general advice because it's, it's uh, dependent on the role and, and kind of the, what, what the company is set out to do. Um, but now there is so much more resources available online that, that you can look for how, how uh, and of course, expensive lawyers will always advise <laughs> you, but um, uh, to kind of have those basic principles written down and agreed between the shareholders that what if, what if I get sick and I'm unable to participate anymore? 
Yeah, that's also a case, a, like a case scenario I would not have thought of. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you very much for like. Uh, at least it's good to know that the different options. For example, I never thought about the 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 fact that you could potentially like have different objectives for different like a uh, kind of persons and roles. Mm. Uh, I knew mm. about you know like the like we used in my previous startup. We used the the time investment and the experience of people combined and we had it like and this is how we shared the equities at the beginning um yeah. but uh yeah we didn't make the mistake of not talking about it when it was not fine so it was good <laughs> uh when, when 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 three out of six left the company after a few months um yeah. but uh like so that's but that's not easy to to as you said to manage to set goals that are fair for everyone and based on that. But it's good that the options are there. And as you said, now online, there's a lot of references. Um, one of the things I wanted to to jump into now, because we are still at the, you know, talking about the beginning of the company. And the second advice you sent me was don't be too early uh, in the in the market. It doesn't matter how great your solution is uh, or how dedicated your team is. Um, so, and you told me a bit more about your, your advice here. So can you elaborate a bit about that? It's usually the, the first rule of, of, of successful startup is that uh, the team is everything, but I would still say that the market is everything, no matter how talented and, and good your team is, if there is no market, there is nothing. But then also that. In a way, if, if you are too early, but you're in a financially in that situation where you don't need to draw salary, for example, then it's a good good time and space to to develop the solution and test things that necessarily don't scale. Whereas when the market and then then you're ready when the market arises and appears. But this is, of course, a time that we don't know in advance when that is going to happen. So that brings me to the third advice you sent me when you said, make sure you work with the right customers, not 50% right, but 100%. Can you um, iterate on that? Like looking at our experience, we, you know, first of all, Finland is, is, is a very small market uh, in anything let alone e-commerce. So for us, finding first um, customers who who were interested in the solution and had enough delivery volume and were developed enough to in order to kind of test something new was was a big challenge. So so we ended up talking to several marketplaces of big corporations who were mildly interested and would be prepared to, to give us an opportunity to to test something out if we gave it for them for free. Okay, so is that the um, the, the, the first like the, the first big let's say big pilot you had? You basically like had to develop the products for free with for them. For, or to no, offer because we, we we said no to to free opportunities because we, what we are developing is hardware. There are costs associated with it. So if a customer is not committed enough to put any money on the table, then they are probably not the right customer for you. You are not solving a problem for them that is 
of any uh, of enough significance if they are not willing to pay for it. So that's the first sign of them not being the right type of customer for you. And 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 also like we we were looking for like peer to peer marketplaces. We were talking to them, and uh, where where reusable packaging would make a lot of sense. But we had no idea, and we still don't know really how to create a business model in there. So we spent months and months talking to those players because they were big companies with big volumes, but we simply couldn't figure out a business model. So we wasted a lot of time talking to wrong type of customers. The right type of customers, when we found them, proved to be really small. So they didn't really create any revenues from the from from the service, but they were enough. They they were kind of uh, those crazy innovators in a way that they were willing to to put money on on developing a solution that works for them. That then uh, and and we at the same time saw that these are type of customers where. But there are so many of them that that we can then scale the solution that that we develop for them to to other similar customers. And that's is that what yeah. you meant as well when you said uh, you said something very interesting and in, in, I think on the change now um, like conference stage where you said that different stages have different challenges and that like you know multi billion companies need different requirements to work with than small companies like your early adopters. Mm. When when you said you know you tried both you tried a bit of both the the small ones are the most interesting for us is it just for this stage right now and and are you starting to slowly progress with the with the biggest one because I mean you have Zalando for example or so H and M as well uh, like that starts to be like big fish out there so how how what was your approach to go from the small to the big ones? Well, the small ones are quite easy because they are in the field that we are in they were the sustainably minded entrepreneurs who had started a brand or a circular jeans brand or, or, or sustainable fashion or something like that. So for us, if, if they were not interested in what we do, then I don't think we would have had, then that would have been a sign that we don't have really anything except a nice idea, but doesn't even uh, interest the, the hardcore uh, founders of, of sustainable fashion companies. With those, the good thing about those is that they punch above their weight in terms of of being cool and uh, resonating with the right type of audience. So many other founders who work in sustainable fashion see that, okay, this brand, Munchin's adopted repack. What is that? We want to find out. So like with any segment, they, you buy from each uh, kind of uh, those those small companies work, of course, as as um, a reference to other similar type of plans. And then the next stage is going to kind of early majority. It's still traditional model of of innovators, uh, then early majority of of more established, bigger uh, companies with also with sustainable. Um, mindset, uh, 
and then we are coming the quote and, and with every segment they buy from when, when they are it's easier for them to buy if they see similar brands have bought and of course the difficulty there is also always to have the first customer from that segment so when a year ago year and a half ago when we at the same time we started working with h&m uh, and Salando kind of doing the phase one of, of reusable packaging with them. That led to, to a host of, of approaches from other global uh, brands and retailers are, who, who are looking at what their competitors are doing. But you, you can't skip, you can't go from working with a, with a small sustainable fashion brand to, to a local, uh, to a global uh, brand who are of course also looking at what size of a partner they are going to bed with and uh, how reliable and, and so those ti- those discussions take time they follow you for a number of years how things are progressing how you're growing what, what are your uh, references saying about you they do probably a lot of uh, work in the background that you don't even know that they've been talking to your customers. And is there, in that case, did you have a specific like follow-up strategy or were you, because it's true, like with these big like giants, the, big, the bigger the company, the more like resources they have, the longer it takes to take decisions, but they, they can follow you for a few years because they have enough, basically like they can have a sustainability manager with just, whose role is just to have a look at the state of the art out there and what is going on. Uh, did you have a, like a follow-up approach every six months to see, hey, like to contact the same person and talk about your progress? Or have you just waited that they get they got back to you? No, we, we do. We do have a, yeah, you have a sales process that you follow and, and you have regular newsletters and, and I'm going back to seeing like what if, if now is the time to continue the discussion but it's it's often quite one-sided discussion you are knocking the door quite many times before before you get the response and the response is usually it's not a priority at the moment let's come back to it in six months time so yeah don't give up though in time they they will turn uh, not all of them, but uh, a big portion of those, of course, will turn into customers as well. Um, but the kind of the best best uh, sales tool is always a competitor doing it or a reference group doing it, and and that being uh, published and and resonating and spreading in the media. Are you using? Follow. Are you actually like trying to? To boost these these word of mouth by by uh, for example doing some LinkedIn advertising strategies or boosting some posts on social media when you have some success with customers to just amplify that uh, these successes so that it arrives to the you know to the ears of the the, the other companies. Yeah, we do because it's it's a uh, it's the best kind of sales tool that we have is is a launch with a with a well known brand. And for them, it's also a marketing tool to, to talk about the initiatives that they're doing in terms of sustainability. So we never really have problems in 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 in, in getting the PR out of uh, a launch with a brand. Are you working with a PR um, agency in that case, or 
Do you do it yourself? We haven't. Well, no, no, we have not. No. Uh, we've talked about it. We've thought about we tried some small ones, but uh, but have found that, uh, um, yeah, it's so expensive. That's the one thing. I haven't found a, a, a good fit. Um, probably will do at some point this year. But also, of course, when you work with the, with the bigger companies, then they have their own uh, marketing and PR departments that put a lot of effort in in getting the stories out there, and and, and that's been kind of a great help to us because we see Repack as as an enabler, kind of like Intel Inside or Goretex kind of thing. That it's not that Zalando is using Repack; it's Zalando reducing packaging trash with reusable packaging and, and Repack enables that. Yeah, and you used a lot, like in that case on, on your side, the, 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 the easiest way to, and the, like the cheapest way to, to promote it was like you are often on, on, on fairs and, and conferences basically talking about your, your, your successes yeah. and Repack yeah. like, as yeah. the way you're doing it right yeah. now. Thank yeah. you for all these tips and, and sharing your experience about that. Very helpful. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about, uh, and that you mentioned in in the advices you gave me, um, I wanted to talk about the product itself. Like, uh, I will share the link, of course, to your website on on, on our webpage, uh, because I think it's very interesting to see how uh, like how the product look like now. I actually, like when I thought about you know, I, I thought about it was just kind of like a mail envelope. Uh, but it's it's kind of like looking more like a small bag actually, uh, and uh, and it's also very interesting to see on your website how the design has evolved from you know PVC PP RPP. It was made in Finland at some point. Now it's made in China, um, and you won a lot of sustainability and design awards, uh, like the German Sustainability Award in 2020, for example. Um, what's something that intrigues me is um, How like uh, how did you decide to go, for example, to made in Finland to made in China? Uh, two reasons: cost and quality. And quality as well. Absolutely. Um, of all the manufacturing partners we've had, we've had we made repacks in, and when it was yeah, Finland, uh, Latvia, Bulgaria, Vietnam. Uh, Turkey, I think, at some point as well. The, the best quality and the, and the most competitive price with also um, has, has come from China. We are working on, on changing that. We're not big fans of, of what is happening in China, so we'd rather have the manufacturing done somewhere else. Um, but uh, once, once you've built the supply chain, it's, it's difficult and, and slow to change that. Yeah, because repacks are currently the design, it's handmade product. So all the sewing and, and that, uh, we don't really have that kind of know-how and, and skills and workforce, at least in the Nordic countries, doesn't really exist. You mean uh, when you said you, it's still hand, like handmade and you don't have the, yes. no, the knowledge or the know-how to do it, uh, like uh, if I had to, to do it in, in Finland? Does it mean like 
in in China they are able to do it and to on on, on a more scalable process, uh, yeah. or is it like the way you design the the basically the the product itself that has to be handmade even in China? Well, it doesn't have to be, but but the they are used to manufacturing bags and 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 sewing in in high quantities and high volumes. Uh, they used to delivering. Uh, European companies with uh, required quality standards and and um, and different kind of uh, uh, so, and have all the kind of certificates to to back up also the environmental and social part of that. So, um, in terms of the quality that that we get from there is is yeah, it's been the best so far. Something you said. Um... I read on LinkedIn, one of your posts, you were saying um, major breakthroughs and the biggest mistakes are often made after a few drinks. And you shared a, <laughs> a, a very nice, a very funny video about that. I'll share it in the, in the, on the, on the web page as well. But, and he said, in case you are wondering, yes, big part of early innovation and repack happened intoxicated. Some design ideas weren't as good in the morning after all. Can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, so when we founded the company, like I said, it was sort of a design agency and Repack was a side project that we usually spent one evening a week uh, having beers and then drawing different stuff on, 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 the, uh, on the wall, depending on, on, on who is the user, kind of creating user personas, uh, thinking about how the cycle actually works, how the business model, how does the money money uh, go around in, in a model like this. So I remember us sitting uh, around a table and having three euros on the table, and then we were moving it around, one being an, uh, a consumer, one being a brand, and one being repack, and seeing how the money actually uh, travels in that system. Um, the packaging designs as well, and uh, going through those, drawing them on the wall, criticizing uh, or, or, or congratulating on major breakthroughs that may not have been such big breakthroughs in the morning or when you actually went to talk to, to a manufacturer. Um, very, um, I mean, it was probably it was the most fun time of the whole, whole journey, I'd say, in that sense, because everything was possible. There were no limitations because he didn't understand uh, too much about the limitations of possible customers or supply chains or logistics operators. It's a quite quite uplifting time in in a way where yeah uh, everything is open. Uh, and is and, that uh, for yeah and, and creating anything new? And if opening up your mind always helps. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. As soon as you don't do it the whole time and you don't need it the whole time, then no, uh, no. <laughs> it, can be, it can help boost your, your creativity uh, sometimes. One of the advice you sent me was um, don't worry about the initial like unit cost as your solution will develop and become cheaper as you get better. Uh, and I guess, you know, like as uh, you just mentioned how business model, like the different types of business models you, you have imagined. 
Mm. And here, can you elaborate a bit on that, about the how the cost has evolved? And I mean, were you worried about that at the beginning and then you realized you should not have been worried about it? I don't remember if we were worried about it, but I do remember that when we were first manufacturing the bags, the unit cost per bag was something like seven or eight euros. Um, and if the revenue per, per cycle was three or four, then I think we, in the beginning, we thought, okay, that, that's fine because we will earn uh, the cost of the manufactured bag uh, during the life cycle of the product. Uh, but the unit cost, well, if you make something for seven or eight and you sell it for three, of course, it doesn't make any sense. So, even if you it, reuse it, it I, because that's what the idea behind what you well, just said, right? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it, it does make sense in, in the long term, but, but it, at that cost point, you would need to be seriously well-funded operation to carry that initial capital investment. And, uh, and we definitely were not that at the time. So, uh, uh, I don't know why maybe we didn't think about it too much or whatever the reason was, uh, but I, I mean, we, it could have been that we would have had someone really strict on, 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 on kind of a cost controller type, which probably exists in any big company. So the controller would probably have said that, look, guys, there's no way this initiative is going to get funded when the unit cost is this high. And that would have killed the project before it even got started. And what happened then that made it like possible right now in terms of no. product and costs? Five different design and moving the manufacturing to, to Asia. So we improved the design based on the initial experiences of our first customers, what works, what doesn't, what is necessary, what is not necessary. And then also kind of uh, finding when we launched the project, uh, we got visibility of course and, and then people with know-how on, on sourcing from different countries and, and suppliers uh, approached us and, and we got some help on, on building the supply chain and finding manufacturers that that helped us to, to, to also to develop the solution but make it uh, in a much much cheaper price than uh, than that was back then okay so again the, the reference references and, and the visibility of, of of the service helped us to, to find the right people to help us to the next step. That's also a, a side uh, a side effect of like basically talking about your brand and I'm insisting to so many CEOs sometimes that like uh, that don't promote enough their companies and like that's that's so important and you, you have so many like side effects of just talking about your companies everywhere. Uh, and I know it's, yeah. it's time consuming of course. I mean, it's, it's most time consuming, and uh, but it's if if we were if we had decided to be in stealth mode, as was the style of startups of some of startups more back then, twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, 
we would not have been exposed to the to the people who who find something like this interesting and are interested and and willing and and have skills to help us to take the next step so and and also like coming from finland with no market no real e-commerce market it was clear from to me and from day one that that we need to be uh, at events uh, speaking about this uh, and, and try to get as many speaking engagements uh, around Europe as possible and, and, and anywhere really. So uh, that's a big time investment, but uh, without it, we wouldn't have built the network uh, or the brand recognition and won the awards or done anything really had we had we stayed in here and developed it in stealth mode absolutely vital to, to get it get your name out there and and, and uh yeah push <laughs> push the message because it they yeah it, it's at least for us it, it's been absolutely critical yes that's that's a good advice and i totally agree with it so uh, talking about the price, so I have a, like a like let's say a marketing sales question here, uh, because I saw on your website, you know, it's the price per unit are are already on the on the website. I think it's like the cheapest one is two seventy five per cycle euro. Mm. How did you come with the business model at the end uh, that I saw that uh, it's actually not the brands who pay for it, but the brands offer. Uh, the customers to usually like have a repack of uh, in that case a sustainable uh, reusable packaging and to pay for it so how did you come up with that uh, solution with the brands instead of having them like just buying it and charging more and on the marketing side point of view should you put the price on the website or not because uh, of course putting the price on the website will deter some customers but also like save some time for you so what was was this intentional on your side so the business model just repack is definitely at a premium price point when when you compare it to any other packaging single use packaging out there and the reason for that is that uh, we cover the cost of the return and, and that's where the biggest cost arises it's not the packaging itself it's it's the being able to return it from anywhere in the world, whether that, that causes the high cost of it. But given that it's it's around three euros, then it was quite clear from early discussions with brands that uh, this it's too high price for for them to ship all orders in repack. So so together with the first customers, we came up with a solution. Okay, well, let's give your customers the choice to opt in choose it and pay for it. And that makes it free for the brand. The brand itself doesn't actually pay anything uh, to use use Reback. So it was a cost-driven decision, a conclusion, maybe, uh, inevitable. And the customers uh, are now willing to pay for it. That's also the good thing that has yeah, probably changed yeah. the past years. Some are, some are not. And it depends how it's implemented on the website, how many do so. And that is something that we are still learning uh, through every every new customer implementation. Um, and then what comes to the putting the prices on the website, 
we only recently put them out there. So for a long time, we haven't had the prices in there. Um, they're still not well presented on the site itself, I feel. But at, at the, why, why we're going that way is, is though that uh, I believe, yeah, just need to make things easy. I personally hate going to a website and not seeing the price of a product or service that is available there. Uh, so doing that ourselves or not, not showing the price is, is, is annoying <laughs> me personally. But also that make buying easy. So when you were talking about like um, logistic as well, and, and you said, you know, you, you mentioned manufacturing in China and on your website, you're also very clear about the impact of your company. And uh, there is something that you're saying and uh, very, very like out loud also on LinkedIn that you are not a carbon neutral company in a way that like what on your website people can see the, the impact of the project because you've partnered with uh, the Upright Project, which is a company that quantifies the, the net impact of companies. So basically they... They evaluate what are the positive and negative impact of your company on the environment, society, health, and knowledge. And you have a positive impact, uh, like a, a bigger positive impact than companies producing single-use packaging. But then you talk about the carbon offsetting in general. When you said, I read your, when I read your post here, you said we are not carbon neutral. Since 2015, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, more and more firms are confirm, con communicating about the carbon neutral strategies, but most of the time it implies carbon compensation programs, but not necessarily a real trajectory of meeting the 1.5 scenario. And then, you know, you talk about the, the issue of how carbon, like the ton of carbon is priced. Uh, and like uh, also the, the other issue is that like lots of companies saying they are carbon offsetting uh, are actually less willing to just uh, progress and evolve in the right direction on their side because they're just paying for, for the, the damages they have, mm. like they have. So can you iterate a bit on that? So when we were finding the founding, founding the company, I, I was doing exactly this type of work of calculating carbon footprints of different products and different systems and And the end result was usually that, okay, now we understand where the emissions come from. What should a company do about that? And uh, usually the, the answer was that, well, now we know. I mean, that's fine. Now we know. But to do something about it, that's, uh, that's difficult. And usually nothing happened. And I got quite frustrated about that. That information was actually the objective to understand where the emissions come from, not a starting point of actually starting to reduce them. And, and, and still seems that the many companies seem to calculate their carbon footprint and then buy, buy carbon credits and say, okay, now we've done our bit. Now we are carbon neutral and use that in their, in their greenwashing uh, PR and stuff like that, but actually not doing anything about the emissions. I, For example, when, when we speak to, to a prospective brand about using Repack, And, and they, many brands at the moment are highlighting the fact that they are carbon neutral and saying that this is sustainability is really important to us and blah, blah, blah. However, when, when it comes to then doing something about it, for example, offering 
spare customers an option to use reusable packaging when they shop online and paying for it so that the brand doesn't have to pay anything themselves. Uh, many of them still come back like, oh, this is nice, but it's not a priority for us. So, okay, so you're a brand that is really pushing the message of, of you being carbon neutral and having the sustainability projects highlighted on your site. But when it actually comes to offering a solution and putting it out there and, and, and changing the way you work as, as a company and, and your logistic processes, then it suddenly is no longer a priority. So to me, carbon offsetting is, is the easy way out of not having to do anything. You don't have to do anything. You just say, like, we are carbon neutral, we are responsible, this is important to us, and then carrying on business as usual. And that will not, it's not enough in to, to reduce emissions. I mean, European Union has a really um, ambitious target of over 50% carbon reduction in a little over 10 years, or 2030. That is, that will not be achieved through offsetting. We need to do, all of us, or every company, every individual, will have to change their habits. Yeah, I agree totally. Like, uh, because it's it's just, offsetting is, uh, we had to talk also with Lubo Miller from Plan A, uh, is is a way, but it, that should be the last way you you, you, you use to, to basically be more carbon neutral. Because it's so easy for all these companies. And, and it's just logical, right? We are more and more on the planet. Uh, you can't like everybody cannot just keep on paying for the negative impact they have in their environment because the 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 way carbon offsetting works is usually like you pay for having a company who has a positive impact to support a positive uh, initiative on their environment. So, for example, planting trees. But if you keep on destroying forests and if you keep on like polluting everywhere, you can't plant trees everywhere in the world because it's just being more more, more packed right now. So I totally agree with you. And I, I mean, it can be that one day we we will also offset some of our emissions, all of our emissions. But before we do that, we need to. I mean, it's the it's kind of the last on the list. What was the before, the, before. the biggest um, the biggest thing you've changed on, on the company level to to adjust to to try to decrease your 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 carbon emissions? Was it less travel by plane? Less are you all vegan? I know. Well, now for the past twelve months we've stopped flying. Yes. You stopped uh, flying. Oh yeah. For the past twelve months, yeah. Um, and we we see that the impact that our service has on on reducing uh, carbon emissions from e-commerce uh, packaging far outweigh the emissions that we have from our own operations. I'm not going to, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pay attention to what, what we do as a company. But uh, we we founded Repack uh, because we wanted to kind of also set an example that that things can be done differently in a, in a relatively simplistic way. So also to, to kind of inspire others, okay, well, reusable packaging is possible. It is possible to create new business models 
uh, that are now called circular economy, but didn't exist really back in 2013, 2012, 13, 14. And, and also to show that actually there is a a growing consumer base who want this and and brands uh, who offer the more sustainable innovative options benefit from doing that because they they make their customers happier uh, than those who, who don't offer any innovative, sustainable options or whatever. So, um, kind of setting an example was, was one of the main drivers why we founded the company. And, and this being a potentially kind of a, a high volume, scalable operation, then uh, the benefits of and, and the carbon reductions that our service creates far outweigh what, what we do as, as, as a team of 15 people. I saw on your website that you have an NPS, a net promoter score of, of 72. And you said within like, I, I don't remember the exact number, but it was a bit more than 3000 customers or clients. These NPS score, do they come from like brands from you or are they from like the, the end users, the one who sent the package back? from the end users and that was kind of the first the most important thing also going back to when we started was that uh, it doesn't really matter what the brand owner says about feedback whether they like it or whether they hate it if their customers come back with that sort of figures that uh, seven yeah or 70 percent of their customers are giving it a score of nine or ten out of ten then you'd be quite a, a stupid brand not to listen to that customer base and not offer it. In the beginning for us, that was the sign that, okay, we are getting such a high uh, end user rating that we have really touched something here that has potential to become a, a, a bigger thing. What is a touch point where, when it, where people are actually like uh, sending you back this score? So when, when you return an empty repack, you get an automatic email saying thanks for your repack return. Uh, it may have it may it may include a, a reward, for example, a voucher for your next purchase, and also comes with a with a request to give us feedback. Okay, seventy percent of the users. So like net promoter scores basically like calculated by how many promoters you have for your company would answer the question: Would you recommend repack to one of your colleague or your friend? On a scale of one to ten, and and you seventy percent of the people said uh, give you a, a nine or a ten. So which is for the for the people who are not used to it, super super high. When I when I when I talk about, mm. for example, you can compare the NPS score of different in different industries. And I've had a look yesterday, and uh, you know the highest average one is seventy one, and it's for education mm. and trainings. Mm. And if you take, for example, logistic and transportation, the average is twenty nine. So having an NPS of like 72 on your case is super, super high. And this is why sometimes I'm, I'm, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I work also with, with Retrace as a, as a client, as a client and, you know, talking to, to try to do the same thing that help trace the supply chain in a more like a 
sustainable and transparent way to show that like, companies want to be really sustainable, that they are sustainable and fair to their like, employees. Uh, and it's kind of like crazy to see that you have to insist on, on, on the fact that people really liked and really care about it. And here, actually, you are putting a number on that. And that's what I find fantastic, mm. that like knowing that the people are so enthusiastic about it once they try it. Yeah. Sure, yeah, and especially in the beginning, it's more important for any any new service developer to find a group of hundred who absolutely love it than a, a group of ten uh, thousand who kind of are not, don't really have an opinion about it. It's, it's okay. That brings me to the to the basically the last questions I wanted to ask you that I ask all my guests. What is the best advice you've been given as an entrepreneur? Don't listen to advice. <laughs> don't listen to advice yeah. I don't know uh, especially in the beginning we were looking for people who, who know this but uh, uh, not to didn't take too long to realize that actually no one does we, we were doing something that, that hadn't been done before I think one of the good advice is that always always uh, thank for, for the advice that you get no matter how good or bad it is because for, for that person sharing the advice, it's uh, they sincerely want to help you. And if you've heard the same advice a thousand times, it's the first time they say it. So, so always thank, thank the person giving you advice, no matter how useful or useless it is. Then I'll, I'll, uh, I'm thanking you right now then for all the advice you already shared today. <laughs> Um, which book would you recommend entrepreneurs like you to read, or which books, which book have you like read recently that you really liked? Quite a few, of course. Jim Collins and, and Good to Great, for example. But then um, uh, Hard Things About Hard Things. That's quite good. Hard Things About Hard Things. Yeah, I was advised to read it by by a similar podcast like this. And I read it, and it was quite interesting because it, it talks about those things that uh, usually only a startup founders come across, uh, and and they 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 are moments in any entrepreneur's life that uh, are quite rare, and there are no easy solutions to. Uh, but like like going back to to changing a founding team or changing, uh, getting rid of an employee that is not uh, performing is that, uh, like, in, like in that book, what it said is that deep down, it's like a relationship. Deep down, you know, things are not working out. And you keep pushing that feeling away, postponing the decision. But uh, ultimately, the day will come when, when you need to make the big decision of parting ways. And at that point in time, it feels bad, bad. But the next day, when you wake up, you know that uh, it was a good decision and should have been done a long time ago. On the same topic, what what is one podcast or influencer or blog that you would recommend to read or to listen to, sorry, or to watch? I only listen to football podcasts these days, <laughs> <laughs> just to get my mind off, off work. 
Um, Which team are you a fan of? Uh, I, I follow Everton and then, of course, Finnish national team who finally made it to Euro 2020. I hope it's going to be 21 now. Can you tell us one thing about you that I wouldn't be able to find out online? Besides that you are an Everton fan. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a good one. Leave it like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think... say, like, when I, I was thinking that before this podcast, are you going to ask me about how passionate I am about reusable packaging? And then I was thinking about, well, how to answer that? And I would say that I'm not passionate about Uh, reusable packaging. If I was as passionate about the work that I do as I'm about football, then I, I, I think I would have had a mental breakdown very, <laughs> like years ago. So um, I've had to work is, is, is a, to have a professional attitude towards work. It's something that's uh, intellectually uh, interesting and, and stimulating and, uh, and you need to do the best you can every day. But if you're invested on that on a, on an emotional level, as you are in in a sports team, for example, then uh, that's not good news for you in the long term because there are so many setbacks and highs and lows are really high and really low. You need to kind of try and keep it at at uh, uh, some sort of manageable level to to be able to cope with all the highs and lows that that come to you almost on a daily basis. So is it really what drives you then on, on, on like a, that kept you going is the fact that you, you wanted to stay professional and to, uh, to, 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 to keep on going with, with re, like with repack or was it something else that was also motivating you? Well, what's motivating me is that uh, I think, I mean, this is definitely a marathon that, that we are on. It's not a sprint. So to, to kind of, we are still at an early stage. We're still proving whether reusable packaging actually scales. But it's the, the both kind of showing that, yeah, more sustainable ways are possible, can be done. Um, and then also kind of the, the intellectual stimulation that doing something that's never been done is, is quite interesting and uh, rewarding. It's a great way to finish, to end on that note. Um, the final thing, um, you know, before we, we say bye, this is your time. If you want to say anything to our audience, uh, you know, like, of course, I'll share the link of where they can find Repack, uh, where they can find you on LinkedIn. But is there anything specific you want to share about, you know, are you looking for investors? Are you looking for, are you hiring? Um, it's your time right now to, to share it with our, with our audience. If I was to, not advice, it's more of an encouragement to any, especially those with, with a, a entrepreneurial skills and background is that uh, focus on, on what the world needs. Uh, in the long term, rather than uh, gains or or ad optimization, the skills that uh, any entrepreneur, especially those who've had exits already on their backs, uh, 
put those skills into into making the world a better place. Thank you. That's a, that's the best way to end this podcast, and I'm really happy. Uh, thank you very much, Yonip, for 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 sharing your experience, your success, but also the, the things that didn't work today, and all your advice. I wish you all the best in 2021. I'm sure, given everything, like all the signals that I see regarding your customers, that the the world is going in a in a better di- direction, uh, at least in in some ways, and that uh, you have plenty of way to to progress and have an impact with Repack. So thank you very much for your time and I uh, wish you all the best and have a nice day. Thank you, Charles. If you like this podcast, there are two things you can do that would mean the world to me. The first thing is to sign up for the podcast newsletter. That way you will be notified of the new episodes, but you will also get a summary of the learnings at the end of every season Plus, for each episode, you will get the resources and the list of do's and don'ts that every guest shares with me. And finally, you will also get the opportunity to ask our future guests one question in advance. You can sign up for this newsletter on gtimpact.com. The second thing you can do to be super helpful is to recommend this podcast. For that, you can write a review on Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with your friends, other entrepreneurs, and people trying to build a sustainable future. That way, we can all learn together and work on a brighter future for us, our children, and our planet. Thank you very much, and see you next week for the next episode. Have a nice day!